Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. It's a long chapter. We're at the end of chapter 29, top of page 386. It is telling us how does a person deal with uh, apathy and difference when a person stops caring and the person says, I'm not interested. You lose interest. You know, it's one thing when there's still interest, when you're angry or upset, but there's still interest. Imagine like a relationship. And as long as, as long as there's feelings, even negative feelings, but at least there's feelings. You're angry, you're upset. But when you reach a love point of apathy and difference and you don't care, you stop caring, it's a very dangerous, dangerous point. So when a Jew is struggling in the service of Hashem, he's struggling. But when you reach a point, you stop caring. Your heart is shut down. You just don't care anymore. You're not interested. You have no energy. You just couldn't care less. And that's a, very, that's a very dangerous moment. How do you break through that apathy? How do you break through that indifference? It's very difficult. It's very difficult. I have to, I'm sorry, I have to ask you a question. But what, what is the cause? What ah, is so he diagnosed his illness. He diagnosed his illness. The cause is arrogance. When does a person stop feeling? When does a person, when does your heart shut down and you stop caring and you lose interest? When your heart, when you become arrogant. It's all arrogance. And therefore, if you want to deal with the, you have to get to the root cause because it's the arrogance. How do you get through to the arrogance? How do you penetrate that arrogance? So he says a person has to take stock of himself. Be a little honest with himself. Take stock of himself. And start realizing to shake yourself up a little. Because when the person becomes so arrogant and complacent, you proud and you have to shake yourself up a little. Start looking at yourself honestly and objectively. What's really going on inside. And you start uh, taking an honest look at yourself and you realize that it's not so pretty. It's not a pretty picture. And when you shake yourself to the core, it breaks your heart. And he calls it the Zahar. The anecdote is when wood refuses to catch fire, you have to break the wood into a thousand pieces to get the wood to be able to catch fire. So to catch fire, you have to break your heart. You have to break through that arrogance. It's not a question of learning more Torah, doing movements, and adding more fuel, adding more kerosene, adding more fire. It's not going to help you. Because your heart is shut down, your heart is clogged, you're apathetic, you're indifferent, you're smug, content. You're arrogant. You have to break through that arrogance. And the way to break through that arrogance is by shaking yourself to the core, making an honest evaluation of yourself, taking an honest accounting of your situation. Where am I in life? What's really going on? And then you realize that the, the picture is not so pretty. So instead of being so content and smug and satisfied with yourself and proud of yourself and of, of foolish pride, 
it breaks your heart, and that breaks through the arrogance. Then you can feel once again. And now he continues. We thus see from the Zohar that one may evaluate himself by studying the contents of his dreams. Thereby, he can humble his spirit, even if he finds himself free of sin, and in this way he may crush the Sitra Achra within him, as explained above. The longer he reflects on these matters, both in his own thoughts and by delving deeply into books which speak of these matters, in order to break down his heart within him and render himself shamed and despised in his own eyes, as is written in the scriptures, so utterly despised that he despises his very life, the more he despises and degrades thereby the Sitra Akhra, casting it down to the ground and humbling it from its haughtiness and pride and self-exaltation, wherewith it exalts itself over the light of the divine soul's holiness, obscuring its radiance. Up to now, the Alter Rebbe has proposed means of crushing the Sitra Akhra within one's animal soul by humbling his own spirit through intellectual contemplation. He now turns to another method, that of raging against one's evil impulse, without entering into an analysis of his spiritual level. He should also thunder against it, the Sitra Akhra, with a strong and raging voice in order to humble it. As our sages state, a person should always rouse the good impulse against the evil impulse, as it is written, rage and sin not. This means that one should rage in his mind against the animal soul which is his evil impulse, with a voice of stormy indignation, saying to it, Indeed you are truly evil and wicked, abominable, loathsome, and disgraceful, and so forth, using all the epithets by which our sages have called it. So when nothing else works, you should be disgusted with yourself and... Call yourself, call yourself what you really are. Says you're a bum. That's what you are, a bum, a lowlife. You know, today's, today's culture may be a plus. <laughs> may be considered a, actually a, a precondition, <laughs> a must. But um, you're an empty vessel. In Yiddish, you have some colorful expressions. He calls it a person of a pustakele, a uizvarf, a pustak. You know, like, call yourself who you are. You know, no one likes to admit that they're a brute. Everyone likes to think of themselves in very high terms. But strip away, strip away, the, you know, call yourself honestly who you are. An empty vessel, <laughs> a bum, a low life. Because that, that's, what, that's what this arrogant, ego, out-of-control ego is really all about. When you stop caring, when you stop feeling, when you lose that humanity and humane compassion, elementary, basic feelings, and you just lose interest and you just couldn't care less, what that really tells you is that your arrogance is out of control, your ego is so out of control. You're just a bum in a low life. It's all you really are. And when you start calling yourself by your real name, by your true name. Just put a mirror to yourself. You don't have to... <laughs> just look, look at your situation. No content. Just a bum in a low life. Now, that's very sobering. No one likes to be thought of. No one likes to be called a bum in a low life. But be honest with yourself. You know, and that, that's enough to break you. That's enough to 
break through their arrogance, enough to disgust, feel disgusted, and feel, look how low I've sunk. Look at where I'm at. My heart is shut down. I don't feel anything. I stop feeling. I, gotta, I, I can't feel anything. I'm so arrogant. It's despicable. It's disgusting. And that's what the Talmud says. The rabbi said you should yell at the Yetzirah. Because the Yetzirah, a person who lives an egotistical life, per se, where you define yourself by ego, you live a life of indulgence, you follow every whim and every urge and every instinct, and you stop struggling. I don't want to struggle anymore. I'm not interested. <laughs> I, I couldn't kill it. I'm too tired. I lost energy. I'm not interested in the struggle. I would rather be natural, be true to my nature, and just be a natural be honest with yourself. What you're really saying is, I would rather be a natural bum and a natural lowlife. That's all you are. It's not a pretty place to be. And once you hear those words, once you hear it framed in those words, it shakes you up. No one likes to be thought of as a bum and a lowlife, <laughs> content-free, and really the gutter. You're in the gutter, rolling in the mud. That's all you are. That's who you are. That's where you've come to. That's what this is all about, pretending to be pretty. And, uh, but the truth is, Let's be honest. That's exactly what we want. And it's not a nice place to be. So you should yell at the Yetzirah. Be angry. Upset. And that will sober you up. When a person is drunk in materialism, when a person is so, so far away, because the nature of holiness is you have feelings. You have compassion. You have humanitarian feelings. Especially to your close ones. Especially to Hashem. You don't care. It doesn't matter. Indifferent. Where does this coldness come from? This indifference. This, 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 this is not holy. This is not good. This is not genuine. It's coming from a very ugly, dark place. But the person is delusional. So you don't realize it in yourself. You don't see it in yourself. You don't, and you, st- you stop caring. You know, I, don't, I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to struggle. It's too difficult. I don't want to struggle. I just want to be natural. But... When you realize how far you've stooped and how low you've stooped, how low you've fallen, is that who I am, really? Is that, who, is that me? Am I really a bum and a low life and a good for nothing and scum of the earth? <laughs> is that really? Is that me? But you know, that's you. That's when you allow your ego out of control and your ego is out of control. You allow your base yourself, you lower yourself just to take over and you stop resisting, you stop fighting, you stop, you just succumb, you just surrender. Is that what you're going to do? You're going to allow your lower self to really take charge and control? And you're just going to take, become a back seat, just take a back seat and... So you have to put the animal soul in its place. Because you can never, in the struggle, in the constant struggle, in the animal soul, in the godly soul, you can never let the animal soul triumph. Let the animal soul triumph. It's, it's, you'll never be happy. You'll never be satisfied. But if you don't confront it and you don't call it by its name, so you just it's easy to succumb. And you delude yourself until you put a mirror to your face and you realize, <laughs> look, look what I've become. Look what's going on. Is this me? Is this how I'm going to allow... You know, the, uh, the Nobel Prize was started by Nobel. You know how it started. He was the one who invented uh, TNT. 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 Dynamite. 
what happened was they once printed an obituary. He was alive and well. By mistake, they printed his obituary. They reported, the newspaper reported that he died. So he got to read his own obituary. And he was horrified. He said, this is me? This is what I'm going to remember? That I was the one who introduced TNT to mankind and brought so much destruction? So this caused a revolution in his life. He says, no, no, this is not how I'm going to be remembered. No, no, no. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. It's insulting. And he dedicated his wealth to the Nobel Prize to, you know, to recognize those people and make breakthroughs in medicine, etc. So we can go through life, but put the mirror to your face. Read your own obituary. This is who you are. This is what you're going to remember. This is, who you're, this is what you become. A good for nothing, a low life good for nothing. This is me. This is, and when you put it in those words, suddenly, suddenly you shrink. Suddenly, this balloon—you prick the bubble of the balloon. Suddenly, you deflate this arrogance. This ego comes a little deflated, a little. This this confidence and arrogance—it's really based on nothing. It's, there's nothing there. It's just a silly type of. It's not a confidence based on anything genuine or real. It's just a silly arrogance. Suddenly, it, it shrinks a little. And, um, you know, and you, you, you become a little skeptical, and that's, that's a healthy, healthy skepticism. You know, the, uh, the skeptic, skepticism is a very, a very, is a very, could be a very dangerous thing when, you, when you're skeptical about things that are genuine, about faith. Skepticism could be a damper and could throw a lot of cold water on, on, uh, on, on things that are good. But skepticism sometimes is the antidote for the skeptic. You know, the skeptic is skeptical of everything except his own skepticism. When you, when you become skeptical of your own skepticism, it dampens that skepticism. So skepticism is a very powerful thing. So when you become skeptical of this, of this comfort level that you've grown to and you've become so comfortable with yourself and so proud of yourself and so content and arrogant and smug, you throw in a little skepticism, throw in a little, and then suddenly it loses its power. Suddenly it shrivels. It shrivels up right before your eyes. This arrogance, this ego just shrivels up right before your eyes. And that's the breakthrough. And the heart is broken. That allows your neshama to come pouring forth. That allows all the goodness that's been buried and submerged under this layer, this core crust, this ugly core crust that basically trapped your soul and doesn't allow your soul to emerge, suddenly it's able to break through and it's able to release. And suddenly you're able to feel, get in touch with those genuine feelings, kind feelings, good feelings, compassionate feelings, wholesome feelings. So this is the, what the Talmud says. You have to yell at the Yetzirah. Get angry. Be angry. Be upset. It should bother you. You should be, feel disgusted. And call it, call it what it is. Call a spade a spade. Don't mince any words. And these are the language. The rabbis use very colorful adjectives. And this is what you have to tell yourself. Your out-of-control ego. Your arrogance your arrogant persona that you've created. You have to call, call, call it as it is. You're truly evil. You're wicked. You're abominable. You're loathsome. You're disgraceful. <laughs> and, and so forth. Okay. Continue. 
How long will you obscure the light of the blessed Ein Sof, which pervades all the worlds, which was, is, and will be the same, even in the very place where I stand, just as the light of the blessed Ein Sof was alone before the world was created, utterly unchanged? As it is written, I, the Lord, have not changed, i.e., the fact of creation has wrought no change in him, for he transcends time and so on, and therefore the fact that it is now after creation cannot affect him. But you, repulsive one, and so forth, deny the truth which is so plainly visible that all is truly as nothing in his presence, a truth which is so apparent as to be visible to the eye. You know, the natural soul, the ego soul, is not so, it's not so innocent. Because it's, it's actually a very aggressively covers up in the truth. And it hides in the truth. The truth of godliness. That the world is pulsating, the world is vibrating, the world is alive, the world is godly. The very essence and substance of the world is godly. Nothing changed. Just like God was alone before he created the world. Godliness permeates all of reality. Everything is really godly. The world is a godly world. We are essentially in our very core godly beings. And everyone around us is really, our essence is godly. But the natural soul, the animal soul, completely covers up in this truth. The animal soul, you don't sense godliness, you don't feel godliness. And it, it covers up on godliness and it covers up on, on, on our true core and essence. Because when you're connected with godliness, you realize that you are being recreated each and every moment. So your emotions are also being recreated each and every moment. So you are dynamic. You don't feel stuck. You don't feel, you feel alive. You feel vibrant. You feel constant movement and change and growth. But when the more egotistical a person becomes, the more rigid you become. The more your emotions, the more rigid, rigid you become, inflexible and rigid, and your heart shuts down and you stop feeling any feelings of compassion, any feelings of love, any feelings of mercy, any feelings of kindness, of goodness, sensitivity, and you become completely disconnected. So it's not so innocent. Oh, I'm just following my natural self. It feels so natural. It's the antithesis of the truth. It actively opposes the real, the real truth because it paints, a very, it paints a very false picture of reality. A very distorted picture of reality. When a person becomes arrogant and disconnected, you just you become disconnected from, from reality. The truth is that 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 uh, Hashem is creating the world each and every moment. And um, and the fact that we don't feel that, it's because as he says here, you're addressing yourself to the ego, to the animal soul. He says you're repulsive. You deny the truth, which is plainly visible. It's a truth. But you deny it, and you pretend as if, as if, it's, as if the world is very rigid and it's on its own, and there is no movement and there is no change. And the more egotistical people become, the more difficult it is for them to change. The more rigid they become in their nature, the less forgiving they become, the less there's no movement, there's no change. And... They just stop growing, spiritually. They stop loving, they stop growing, they stop moving, they stop. And it's just a downhill, spiritually downhill spiral from there.
In this way he will help his divine soul, enlightening its eyes to perceive the truth of the unity of the infinite life of Ein Sof as though with physical sight, and not merely through the lesser perception of hearing and understanding. For as explained elsewhere, this is the core of the whole divine service. Intellectual comprehension, i.e. the hearing of godliness, can lead only to a desire and longing for God. The level of perception described as sight leads far higher to one's self-nullification before him. It's not only do you understand godliness, but you're able to see godliness, just like the advantage of seeing over hearing. When you see something, you're more certain of it. You can see it. It's, it's right before you. It's, it's practical, it's something that's palpable. Hearing is abstract, it's intellectual, it's abstract. So there's one thing when you intellectually understand godliness, but it's another thing when you can actually sense it and feel it. So once you're able to break through this ego, this arrogance, then your neshama is able to burst. It's like you burst out of the dam, and then suddenly you're able to sense godliness. It becomes a palpable reality, a living reality, a breathing reality, a tangible reality that you can feel and sense. It, it, it's immediate. Its impact is much more powerful and much more direct. So by yelling on the Yetzirah, by yelling on the Nefesh Abamas in your ego soul, on your natural soul, when your natural soul is out of control, and you feel... Um, you feel stuck and you feel apathetic and you lost interest and you feel arrogant and you feel... Um, so when you're able to break through this arrogance and shatter your heart into a thousand pieces, as a result, your godly soul becomes very vibrant and immediate and relevant and, and, and palpable and tangible. And that's the whole source of divine service. That's the highest level of divine service because when you sense godliness, then it becomes a reality to you. If it's just an abstraction, it doesn't have the impact. It doesn't have the ability to change you. But when it becomes something that you see, almost visually, that's right in front of you, that's immediate, that's tangible, just like you see something physical, you see it. But the impact, the impact it has in you is a very profound impact. Okay, now he's going to explain why all of these, um, all of these things help to break the ego, to break through, break through the arrogance. How can just yelling and, and, and feeling disgusted and, and being angry at your animal soul? And how can this help break through, break through the arrogance and automatically lead you to the highest level of serving Hashem? Just by breaking through and cracking the arrogance and cracking through the shell that's enough to make you, to help you reach the highest levels of the root and source of serving, of serving Hashem, of being able to experience godliness in a very tangible way. I haven't meditated or reflected on godliness. I'm just breaking through my, my arrogance. I'm just yelling at, my, at myself, calling myself a bum and a lowlife. So how is that enough to help me reach the highest levels of serving Hashem? The reason that humbling the spirit of the Sitra Akhra is effective in crushing it is that in truth there is no substance whatever in the Sitra Akhra. That is why it is compared to darkness, which has no substance whatsoever and is automatically banished by the presence of light. So that's the analogy that we use. The godly soul within us is the light. The animal soul, the ego, is darkness. The darkness within us. 
Darkness has no substance. Darkness is the void, the absence of light. That's why a little light pushes off a lot of darkness. And the darkness offers no resistance, it just melts away. Because there is no substance. Light is substance. So the darkness, yes, you walk into a huge tunnel and it's huge and it's pitch black and it takes up the whole space. You light a little match and suddenly the darkness melts away, you can see the whole tunnel. So because there's no substance to this, to the darkness, it's just the absence of light. It's pure arrogance, there's no substance, there's nothing here. It's pure chutzpah, that's all it is. Pure chutzpah. It's, it's hot air. There's nothing there. So the moment you yell boo, suddenly it shrivels up. There's, no, there's, no, there's nobody home, there's nothing there. There's no real resistance. It's just, it's just, it's a pretense, it's a facade, it's a, it's a shell. It's, a, it's, not, it's external, superficial, there's no reality to it. There's no reason, there's no rhyme, there's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no justification for this. It's just arrogance. I'm content, I'm proud of myself, I'm arrogant. And, and therefore, as a result, you lose interest in anything spiritual. You become apathetic. And you don't care anymore. You become like a bum in a low life. I don't care. You know, I, I don't care. I'm good, I'm not good. I, I, you stop growing. You stop moving forward. You stop taking it to heart. So how do you reach, how do you reach it? So by, by yelling and by being upset and feeling ugly, how ugly and disgusted by a situation, Suddenly, you, you, you minimize the darkness. There is no darkness. The, dark, the darkness just gives away. Because there's nothing there. There's no substance. To it. And once the darkness melts away, then automatically the light is able to emerge. What do you do with somebody who doesn't want to scream? It's so comfortable. That's a good question. Well, that's what we learned the other week. Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Rabbi Shemayichai, yelled at that person. He called him most ugliest, the ugliest person. And, and it worked. They sobered him up. And it's not just a question of arguing. You can argue from today till tomorrow. It's not a question of philosophically arguing the point, improving the point. It's cracking through the arrogance. Breaking through that false self. And when your heart is broken, now that innocent beautiful, beautiful neshama, that beautiful soul that now, now we're seeing the real you, the real face. The real face is emerging. The beautiful self is emerging. But it was covered up with all that harshness and that arrogance and that delusion and that when your heart turned into stone. When you're apathetic, you, you think, I can never change. And you know what? You stop betraying. That's the worst part. As long as you're trying to change, as long as you're trying to improve yourself, there's energy, there's hope. What he's describing here, and that's why he spent such a long time, it's a very long chapter, because it's very difficult to deal with. When a person stops trying to change. And worse, when a person says, you know what? I'm not going to change. This is who I am. I'm very happy, and that's it. I have to live with myself, and this is my nature, and this is who I am. And the more I change, I stay the same. So I might as well just quit while I'm behind. <laughs> just, this is who I am. I have to be a real person. What, who am I kidding? That's, that's the lowest of the low. That's the biggest bum, the biggest low life, the biggest... So delusional. How, so disconnected from yourself. So disconnected from your heart, from your soul, from your, your true being, from your true essence, your true nature.
But the true nature is that life is constantly changing. Life is dynamic. God is creating the world each and every moment. You just have to plug into that and suddenly you can change. And this is the biggest proof. A person thinks, I'll never change. You know, people have such strong feelings. This is who I am and I'll never change. The next minute, 180 degrees uh, change. What happened? Because when the arrogance is removed, when that ego and arrogance is removed, suddenly the neshama bubbles to the surface and suddenly you can feel 180 degrees different. So not only is change possible, but change, change is inevitable. That's, that's the name of life. Life is constant movement and change and growth. And, but when a person becomes apathetic and different and stops caring and just has, has no energy and is not interested, loses any interest in change, and the heart becomes cold like a stone, and inhumane and inhuman and loses any sense of compassion, any sense of humility and any sense of... That's a, that's a, and a person becomes happy with himself, proud of it, and content, and resigned to live like that the rest of his life. That's a very sad place to be. It's a very tragic place to be. That's the most difficult thing to deal with. You have to break through, you have to crack through that, that shell, that arrogance. You have to take that stone, that wood, and break it into a thousand pieces. Otherwise, you, otherwise you're getting nowhere. Otherwise totally disconnect but by breaking through the shell by breaking through cracking through that arrogance being broken hearted that alone then the neshama automatically is allowed to emerge the surface when you get the ego out of the way suddenly all those hidden feelings all those submerged feelings all those those deep feelings and that faith that we have innately inherently suddenly is allowed to emerge and surface so when a person thinks that, that you know you're Emotions are so rigid and set in stone. This is who I am, and I have to be true to myself, and I have to be natural, and I have to be real, and that's it. And I don't care anymore. I have to be true to myself. And you stop trying, and you stop caring. And you become jaded and cynical and indifferent. And you don't even try to improve or to change. It's fueled by one thing, and one thing only. Pure arrogance. There's no reality to it. There's no substance to it. And the answer is, you have to break that arrogance. And this proves that not only in a case where a person just becomes indifferent, like in a relationship, you just stop caring. You just become indifferent, you stop caring, you stop trying, you lose energy, you lose interest. And you have to realize where that's coming from. It's nothing, nothing to do with your spouse. It has to do with you, because... You just, your heart has just become like a stone. And you just have to crack through that arrogance. Because nothing, the problem is not the spouse. The spouse has nothing to do with it. Zero to do with it. It's, it's your own heart that's, that's turned into stone. You just become so out of touch with yourself, it's scary. Unfortunately, God knows how to wake us up. We just should be wise enough to do it ourselves. Better we scream at ourselves and God starts screaming at us. Because when, when God starts squeezing us and we wake up and realize where we're at spiritually and, and psychologically, then it's, it's, you know, I mean, unfortunately, the, 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 when we go through the school of hard knocks, it sobers us up very, very, very quickly. Um, what? Also, uh, like a friend to have somebody to admonish you when you need it. 
yeah, to have a real friend. You know, Hasidim used to get together and they used to fabring. And the fabring, and when you have a friend who really cares about you and loves you, and and after a little lachayim, and you know that he's coming from a good place, and then he gives a little criticism. It's like a doctor give, administering a stinging, stinging shot. It stings, but it's a medicine, it's a shot. You have to sterilize the wound before, you have to make sure that there's no ego, there's no arrogance, there's no, it's done in a loving way, it's coming from the best place, it's coming from your best friend, loves you unconditionally, he's not trying to harm you or to sting you or to criticize you just to make you feel bad, but he's giving you a little medicine because you're really, you're really slacking off and you're really losing it, you're really slippering off, it's, slippery, it's a slippery slope and you're really falling, you don't even realize. You know, sometimes it's hard for us to stop ourselves. We're, we're, we're sliding and we don't even realize. And um, so that's the best thing. If a person has a best friend that can tell him honestly. And the truth is society is not, is not, society today is not anyone's best friend. Society today is everyone's worst enemy. Because all society does to everyone is just slap them in the back and tell them you're wonderful and you're great and everything you do is wonderful and you can be the biggest bum and the biggest low life and you can live a lifestyle that's like the, the worst lifestyle on earth. Something you should be ashamed of, nothing to be proud of. And society will slap you in the back and say, no, it's wonderful. Everything you do is wonderful. You can't do anything wrong and you have a right to be whatever you want to be. And, I mean, they look up to you today if you're... I mean, the, the, if you have these qualities, like you said, people look up to you. you have these qualities. So, you know, it's not, they're not, you're not being the person's friend. You know, if, if society was honest, they would look the person in the eye and say, listen, you bum, you're low life. That's all you are, just a bum in a low life. And, you know, and wake up, come on, you're wasting your life. You're wasting your energy. What, what are you doing with your life? You know, you have... Instead of living a content life, a meaningful life, a purposeful life, a substantial life, a wholesome life, look, look what you've become. So it comes from indifference. You don't care about anyone. Basically, I couldn't care less about you. As long as you don't touch me, as long as you don't bother me, knock your head against the wall, kill yourself, self-destruct, what do I care? As long as you don't hurt anyone, do whatever you please. It's none of my business. But if you really care about someone, and you see them falling, and you see them sinking, and you see them sinking in a, in a sinkhole, in quicksand, spiritually sinking. You have to wake them up. And sometimes it means administering a stinging shot, but it has to be done in a loving way, in a loving context. And... Um, you know, and that and that and that wakes us up. But it's better. It's better. So much better to do it to yourself. We should not wait till uh, Hashem wakes us up, till God wakes us up. Because He truly, boy, does He know how to wake us up, and He knows how to remind us when we go so far away from our true selves, our real selves. We become so drunk in materialism, and we stop caring, and our heart becomes clogged. We become indifferent. And, and um, become complacent. And he sobers us up. And reminds us of, you know, 
then, and then the neshama starts feeling again. You know, when your heart is crushed, suddenly you start feeling again. And it reminds you of your innocence and your youth and your innocence. And it brings you back to your good, natural, wholesome self, your real self, your divine self, your godly self. But we should be wise. Why wait till God wakes us up? Let's wake ourselves up. The rabbis are giving us good advice. Yell at yourself. It's much better. Much easier. <laughs> it's cleaner. It's, it's... Just wake yourself up. You're in such a deep sleep. You're like in a coma. You're unreachable. You reach a point where you're unreachable. You stop caring. You stop fighting. You stop looking. You stop yearning. You stop hoping. You stop trying. You don't even care anymore. Stop caring. That's a very, very horrible place to be. That's what he calls timtum malev. Your heart is clogged. You become so arrogant. Your, your animal soul is completely taken over. The darkness has completely taken over. There's no light. It's impenetrable. There's no light. There's no love. There's no light. There's no feeling. There's nothing. You're like dead. You need some serious, serious CPR. So when you break through the darkness, then the neshama is able to emerge. Because the neshama is there. You're not dealing with anything substantial. It's not a question of arguing. You don't have to reason. You can't reason your way out of this. You just have to put the darkness in place, in its right place. If the, the darkness should shrivel up, there's no, there's no substance to it. Put a mirror to the darkness. Call a spade a spade. Realize the blackness and the ugliness of your situation. Look how ugly you've become. Complacent, smug, content with yourself. And it's just, it's just a, you've become a very ugly human being. A real bum, a real lowlife. A real nobody, no, no content, no meaning, no purpose. And you should be disgusted, repulsed by what you've become. Look at you. And the moment your heart is shattered into a thousand pieces, that's it. That's all, that's all you need to, to do in the darkness. Okay, continue. Similarly with the Sitra Ahra, Indeed, it possesses abundant vitality with which to animate all the impure animals and the souls of the nations of the world, and also the animal soul of the Jew, as has been explained. Yet this vitality is not its own, God forbid, but stems from the realm of holiness. For the realm of holiness is the source of all life, including even the life force of the Sitra Akhra, as has been explained above. Therefore, it is completely nullified in the presence of holiness, as darkness is nullified in the presence of physical light. Its power lies only in the fact that in regard to the holiness of man's divine soul, God has given it, the Sitra Akhra, permission and ability to raise itself against it, the divine soul, in order that man should be roused to overpower it and to humble it, by means of the humility and submission of his spirit, and by being abhorrent and despised in his own eyes. For through this, he humbles the Sitra Akhra and abhors it. If 
the animal soul, the ego, really is just darkness, is the void, is the emptiness. Where does it have the power and the might to overwhelm us and to trap us and overwhelm us in its, its darkness? So this is a power that Hashem gave. The Sitra Akhra. So where does the other side get the strength to be able to stand up to the godly soul? If the godly soul is the light and there's no other reality but the, but the light, it has no existence of its own. Because everything receives its sustenance from holiness. So how does the, the, the klipa, how does it have the power to rise above and to obstruct the godly soul? So this is a special strength that Hashem gave. The darkness, the darkness appears to have a substance of its own. It's appearance. It's a mirage. But it has the image of the mirage. It appears to be strong and mighty and overwhelming. And that's why you look at the darkness all around us. And it appears to be overwhelming and and it appears to be so mighty and strong. And sometimes you wonder, how can, where do we have the strength? A tiny little people, where do we have the strength? Where does the godly spark have the strength to be able to overcome, overcome this negativity? But the truth is, that the godly spark, that's the substance, that's the light. That's really this, the reality, the truth. And the darkness is merely the void. So don't be taken in by it. It appears to be overwhelming and almighty and powerful, but Hashem just gave permission, so in order we should have the freedom of choice, in order that we should, we should strengthen ourselves, and that we should be able to overcome, overcome the darkness by realizing that it's nothing, there's no substance to it. So by us realizing that there's no substance to it, and treating it that way, and yelling, and being angry, and upset, and feeling disgusted and repulsed, by the darkness, that's how we subdue the darkness. By calling a spade a spade and realizing the truth, not, be, not being taken in by the darkness, and realizing the truth, that there's no substance to it. And we are the only ones who empower it. By indulging and by taking it for face value, we empower the darkness. But the moment you don't take it at face value, you realize that godliness, that's the light, that's the substance, and darkness is empty, there's nothing there. And you yell at it, and you call it, you, you reveal its true nature, its true color. That's how you subdue the darkness, and that's the whole purpose. God wanted us to, 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 to subdue the darkness. Okay, the arousal, continue. The arousal of man below to crush the sitra achra causes an arousal above to fulfill what is written. From there will I bring you down, says God, to the sitra achra, which seeks to rise against godliness and to obscure it. This means that he deprives it of its dominion and power and withdraws from it the strength and authority which had been given it to rise up against the light of the holiness of the divine soul. Thereupon it automatically becomes nullified and is banished, just as darkness is nullified before physical light. So we are the microcosm. Whatever happens in our hearts and our lives really reflects and impacts the entire universe. So by us realizing the power of the godly soul and calling a spade a spade and putting the darkness in its place and realizing the darkness really has no substance, by that we also impact the whole universe that, and the forces of darkness and light in the universe. The forces of light are strengthened and magnified, become powerful once again and felt in this world. 
And then the forces of darkness, the forces of darkness shrivel and shrink and lose their power, lose their hold on this world. So whatever happens by us, if we empower the darkness and we're taken in by the darkness, overwhelmed by the darkness and allow the darkness to work its, its wonders on us, then the world also becomes a very dark place. Godliness becomes concealed and the, work, the world becomes a very dark place. But the moment we put the darkness in its place and we overcome the darkness, then the world also, the light and the goodness and the wholesomeness in the world also become that much more powerful and the darkness is put in its place. Indeed, we find this explicitly stated in the Torah in connection with the spies sent by Moses to scout out the Holy Land. At the outset, they declared, For he, the enemy, is stronger than we. And interpreting the word mimenu, the sages say, Read not then we, but then he, meaning that they had no faith in God's ability to lead them into the Holy Land. But afterwards, they reversed themselves and announced, We will readily go up to conquer the land. Whence did their faith in God's ability return to them? Our teacher Moses, peace unto him, had not shown them in the interim any sign or miracle concerning this, which would restore their faith. He had merely told them that God was angry with them and had sworn not to allow them to enter the land. What value did this divine anger and oath have to them, if in any case they did not believe in God's ability to subdue the thirty-one kings who reigned in the land at that time, for which reason they had had no desire whatever to enter the land? Surely then the explanation is as follows. Israelites themselves are believers, being the descendants of believers. Even while they stated the enemy is stronger than he, their divine soul still believed in God. They professed a lack of faith in his ability only because the Sitra Achra, clothed in their body, in the person of their animal soul, had risen against the light of the holiness of the divine soul. With its characteristic impudent arrogance and haughtiness, without sense or reason. Therefore, as soon as God became angry with them and thundered angrily, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation? Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. I, God, have spoken. I will surely do it unto all this evil congregation. Their heart was humbled and broken within them when they heard these stern words, as it is written, and the people mourned greatly. Consequently, the Sitra Achra toppled from its dominion, from its haughtiness and arrogance. But the Israelites themselves, i.e. as far as their divine soul was concerned, had believed in God all along. Therefore, as soon as they were released from the dominion of the Sitra Achra, they proclaimed, We will readily go up. There was no need of a miracle to convince them of God's ability. All that was necessary was to divest the Sitra Achra of its arrogance, and this was accomplished by God's raging at them. Similarly with every Jew. When the light of his soul does not penetrate his heart, it is merely due to the arrogance of the Sitra Achra, which will vanish as soon as he rages at it. So this is a uh, powerful uh, illustration he brings from the Torah that proves the point that he's making here in this chapter. After the sin of the spies, when the Jewish people refused to enter the land of Israel, they said that the enemy is stronger than him in the singular, referring to God himself. That God, even God Almighty himself does not have the ability to take us into the land that we, can, we can't conquer the 31 kings, uh, the Canaanites. So what happened? Moshe started yelling at them in anger. God said, he spoke harshly with them. 
that I was going to lead you into the land of Israel, but because of your rebellion, you're going to die in this desert. I swear to you that no male over the age who left Egypt over the age of 20, even the age of 20 to 60, is going to see the land, the new land. You're going to die in this desert. The next thing we know, they forced themselves. They said, we're going to Israel. And Moshe says, please, don't go. And they went, and they were killed, those who went anyway. They forced their way. So he asked, what happened? Nothing happened. What changed? Here, all of a sudden, they were convinced that it's impossible to conquer the land. Moshe yells at them. The next thing they're going, they're marching. Against Moshe's will, they're going into Israel. What changed? I thought you said it's impossible to conquer the land. What changed? And there was no miracle in the meantime. Because according to many commentaries, even the punishment of the spies themselves, the punishment didn't happen until later. They forced themselves to, to, to go to the land of Israel immediately. As soon as they heard from Moshe they're going to die in the desert, they immediately uh, went up, tried to force their way to the land of Israel without permission, and they were slaughtered. But the punishment of the miraculous punishment of the spies, the ten spies themselves, didn't happen until later. And even the opinion that holds that it did happen, it says a miracle happened. Their tongues um, stretched out and reached, reached their, uh, their belly button because they spoke Lashon Hara, and then, then they died. But even according to that opinion, it was only um, the tongue stretched out, but they didn't die till much later, till a month later. So... But this story that they attempted to go to the land of Israel happened immediately. So when the Torah says, even though if you read the Torah chronologically, it says that they died, the spies died, and then it says that the Jewish people said, we're going to go to the land, we're going to go to the land of Israel. But it's not chronologically in order because they didn't die, the spies didn't die according to all opinions, unanimously didn't die till later, a month later. So the story... This, when the Torah says they forced their way up, it didn't happen after this verse. It's like a, um, um, a parenthesis that they died. And then the Torah goes back to the chronological order, what really happened, and that they forced their way. So when they, by the time they forced their way to the land of Israel, the Torah is saying at that point there was no miracle. Nothing changed. There was no dramatic miracle. What made them, what caused them to change their mind? Here, they did not believe. They believed it was impossible to go to the land of Israel. And the next thing you know it, they're forcing their way to go to the land of Israel, even when Moshe says, don't go to the land of Israel. They were so confident that we can conquer. What happened? What changed? They had such a logical, powerful argument. It's impossible for us. Even God Almighty Himself can't even help us, even though God took us out of Egypt, but there's no way we can conquer the land of Israel. And the next thing you know it, they had a 180-degree transformation, and here they are, they're marching and trying to force the way to the land of Israel. What happened? What changed? So the answer is that their skepticism and their doubt and their lack of faith and all the logical arguments and reasoning, there was really no substance to it. It was no substance. It was all, it was all in their mind. It was all delusional. It was all based on ego, on arrogance. It was castles and there was no reality to it. As certain as they were, they were so certain that they cried, we don't want to go to the land of Israel, it's impossible. And they thought that their feelings will never change. I'll never feel differently. I'm so certain of my feelings and my beliefs. Next thing you know, it's a 180 degree turnaround. They're so certain that we could go, even when Moshe told them, don't go. 
because these feelings that we feel so certain of, and our skepticism, our lack of belief that we're so confident and we're so, and we argue and we, there's no substance to it. There's no reality to it. It's fueled by pure chutzpah and pure arrogance. That's all it is. There's no reality to it. The moment Moshe yelled at them that you're going to die in the desert, and he spoke very harshly to them, and they realized how low they had fallen, and they felt shattered, and they realized how ugly, spiritually ugly they've become. And they were disgusted with themselves. When their heart was broken and shattered into a thousand pieces, now all of a sudden, that innate, inherent, natural faith that every Jew has in God, that sense of godliness suddenly emerged. Once that shell was cracked and the inner was allowed to emerge and surface, suddenly they had a 180 degree turnaround. Now they were certain, of course we can go to the land of Israel, nothing can stop us. And they tried to force their way. Even when a person loses his faith, they lost their faith in God. They were certain that God does not have the power to bring him into the land of Israel. They lost their faith. After having experienced the miracle, to receive the Torah, all the miracles, they suddenly lost faith. I'm sorry, we don't believe God can be pulled this one up. Even in such a case, realize that this lack of faith has no substance to it. It's fueled by pure chutzpah. It's arrogance. That's all it is. There's no reality. And the moment you call a spade a spade, look yourself in the mirror, and call yourself what you've become, a bum, a low life. And your heart is shattered, and you, become, you feel disgusted by where you're at and what you've become. Your emotional state of being and your psychological state of being and your spiritual state of being. When your heart is broken to a thousand pieces, now all of a sudden, you don't have to do anything else. All of a sudden, that inner beauty, that inner youthfulness and innocence and, the, and that relationship to God, suddenly you start feeling again that beautiful relationship you have with God and that faith and that trust it comes, comes bubbling to the surface. It was there all along. It never left you. But you created this persona, this false persona. As a result of this arrogance, you created this false, false persona, this false sense of self, which has nothing to do with you. And although you were certain, this is me, and this is the real me, and this is who I am, and I have to be truthful to myself, and I don't believe, and I can't, I can't believe, and it's a lie. The Torah looks you in the face and says, you're lying. You're a liar. It's, a, it's, 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 it's an illusion. It's not true. It's not the real you. You don't, you, deep down you have faith. And deep down you know the truth. And deep down you, 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 you feel love. And deep down you feel connected. And deep down you are connected. And what you feel inside is 180 degrees, the exact opposite of the way you think you feel. So your conscious self, it's just a false, it's just a false person. It's not the real you. And worse than that, we actually deluded yourself that you don't believe in God. It's pure delusion. You can actually delude yourself that you don't believe in God. But there are no atheists in foxholes. The moment of truth, suddenly you sober up very quickly and you discover, you rediscover that faith that never left you. You never lost that faith. It was a, you, you created this false persona. But deep down, everyone knows this God. 
You know that every fiber of your being, every bone in your body, you know in your kishkes. And those feelings are alive and well and vibrant. But you just cover it up. When you crack through the shell and you break through the cover, when the arrogance shrivels up, like a balloon, you prick the balloon, and the, all the hot air <laughs> leaves, and the balloon comes back to its real size, instead of this overinflated sense of self, this over-exaggerated sense of self, and this unjustified sense of self, and suddenly you, you come back to the real size of the balloon. <laughs> now, now, now we can talk. Now you're down to earth. Now you're back to reality. You're down to reality, you're back to reality. Of course, of course we can go into the land of Israel. Nothing can stop us. But after they subdued their arrogance, then they died anyway. Because they, they, they didn't listen to, to Moshe. Moshe says, no, it's too late. You lost your chance. You're going to die in the desert. It's too late. God is not with you. But suddenly, suddenly said, no, we feel so confident that we can go. Nothing can stop us. So they went overboard, but he's just bringing the point that here they had a 180-degree change of feelings. But it didn't and, matter to God because yeah, he yeah, told them beforehand. Yeah, yeah. That, that was too late for them. It was, too late. it was the tenth test, and it was, it was just too late for them. So why you know? is it not too late for anybody? No, they, they were not meant to go into the land of Israel. They proved already after ten tests it wasn't something that, that they can handle. You know, it's not something for them. Their children were going to the land of Israel. But the idea is you can change. Every person in whose mind there occurred doubts concerning faith in God can deduce from this episode of the spies that these doubts are nothing but the empty words of the Sitra Achra, which raises itself against his divine soul. But Israelites themselves are believers. Furthermore, the Sitra Achra itself entertains no doubts at all concerning faith. As explained in chapter 22, the Kalipa in its spiritual state, i.e. when not clothed in the human body, does not deny God's sovereignty. It has merely been granted permission to confuse man with false and deceitful words in order that he may be more richly rewarded for mastering it. In this, it is similar to the harlot who attempts to seduce the king's son through falsehood and deceit, with the king's approval, as in the parable narrated in the Holy Zohar. The Parable A king hires a harlot to seduce his son, so that the prince will reveal his wisdom in resisting her wiles. The harlot herself, knowing the king's intention, does not want the prince to submit to temptation. Similarly with the Sitra Achra. It is merely fulfilling its God-given task and attempting to lure man away from God, but actually desires that man resist it, thereby earning a greater reward. However, this is true only of the spiritual klipa, which is the source of the animal soul. The animal soul and evil impulse as clothed within man, on the other hand, are truly evil, and their unequivocal aim is to entice man to do evil. In the context of the parable, this may be described as follows. The harlot originally commissioned by the king subcontracts a second harlot and the second a third and so on. As the actual executor of the mission becomes successively further removed from the king, the original intention is lost. And finally, the prince is approached by a harlot who has her own intentions in mind, not those of the king, as she attempts to seduce the prince. In any event, we see that any doubts one may have concerning faith in God are merely the empty words of the Sitra Achra. The soul within every Jew 
however, believes in God with a perfect faith. Even the Klippa, the forces of darkness, have no doubt in the reality of God. Even while they're trying to convince you and, and throw cynicism and um, throw doubt in your mind and deny the faith in God, you have to remember that the, the forces of darkness themselves have no doubt because they are also working for the king. And as the Zohar gives a beautiful analogy of the king who wants to test his son, the prince, and he hires the most beautiful prostitute in the kingdom to seduce the prince. Now, she has to do her, her job honestly. But in the heart of hearts, she's begging and pleading with you, please, don't fall for me. You know, I'm just, I'm, this is just a test. This is just to test your wisdom and your strength of character. Don't, 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 uh, don't take this at face value. Don't be strong. So she's really hoping and pleading and begging that you shouldn't, shouldn't fall for it. But of course she has to do a job honestly and faithfully. She can't let on who she's really working for, what's really going on here. So she does everything. She puts out all the stops. She does everything, everything that she can to all the wiles to seduce him. But really, the truth is that deep down she also wants him to be strong. So even the klipa, the klipa is just doing its job. It's also an angel. The angel of death is also an angel of God. He's doing his job. The, uh, his job is to tempt us and to seduce us. Now this is the spiritual origin. The origin, the spiritual at the root, at the source, its intention is, is, is for the sake of heaven. But in, in actuality, on a conscious level, it actually, the, the, the temptation, the forces of temptation is actually very, very, very powerful. And um, it actually means to do us harm and actually is our enemy. You know, the analogy would be like this harlot that the king hired, hired another prostitute, or in turn hired another prostitute. So the origin, the original harlot is working for the king. But by the time you get to the actual prostitute that's going to actually seduce the son, maybe, maybe he doesn't know what's going on. She, I mean, she doesn't know what's going on. So she thinks that this is just a case of prostitution. Um, so, so too, at the root, at the source, the uh, angel of death and the angel of evil, its source, it means its intention is for the sake of heaven. It has a godly intention. It's working for the same one that we're working for. Because it's all a divine intent. This test our character, test our wisdom. But by the time it translates, and by the time it reaches us on a conscious level, we have an enemy in our hand, an enemy that really is trying to hurt us and to harm us. It's not our good friend. When the ego tries to seduce us and tries to get us to indulge and tries, this is not our friend. Yes, you want to have fun, you want to have a good time. It appears to be your friend. But the truth is it's not your friend. It does not have your interest at heart. Because he knows that it's a dead end. And first, he, first you uh, indulge. But at the end, it's a dead end. It's a one-way street to misery. It does not lead to happiness. does not lead to wholesomeness. Um, on the contrary, it, it alienates you. It takes you away from, from... It robs you of the possibility of happiness, of true happiness. It robs your ability to be intimate. It robs your ability to experience real love, to love and to be loved. It really, it's really a, a one-way street. It's a path towards self-destruction. But at the time, you don't see it. At the time, it's very seductive. 
it's junk food, junk lifestyle, tastes delicious, it's good, enjoy it for the moment, and you don't realize that it's just a dead end. And, um, and that's as the Talmud puts it so eloquently. The evil incarnation, he becomes the accusing angel, he is the accusing angel, and he's the angel of death. It's all three wrapped in one. Because the seducer, the temptation, it's my best friend, he wants him to have a good time, why not? But you don't realize that, that's, that then he becomes the accusing angel because that creates all this negative energy that actually drags you down in a very negative direction and ultimately it becomes self-destructive, it becomes the angel of death. You become addicted and, and um, you just lose your balance and lose your mind and you just lose, your, lose everything that's, that's, uh, that's worth, worth preserving in your life. But you don't realize it at the time. So it appears to be your friend, but the truth is it's not your friend. So he's your enemy. And it's a real, it's a real test, a real challenge. And you, and you have to overcome it. But the truth is, at the root and at the source, the motivation behind, behind this ego, is really all for the good. The, the motivation is really a godly motivation. It believes in God. It's doing God's mission. That's God's work. It's also doing God's work in this world. Because God needed, needed us and wants us to have... to have... Um, to have the freedom of choice. And by overcoming, by, oh, by subduing the arrogance, subduing the darkness, and by dealing fire with fire, and by putting the arrogance and the ego in its place, and allowing it to shrivel up, and pricking the balloon, and then we also have the same effect on, 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 the, on the cosmos, on the in the macrocosm, on a global scale, that the forces of darkness also shrivel up and the forces of good are strengthened. Every time we are able to overcome this negativity inside of us, we strengthen all the forces of good around the world. And the forces of darkness become a little weaker and uh, shrivel up. And that's the whole purpose. And if we remember this purpose, we remember that even... Even the, even the evil inclination also, also believes in God. But God empowered it to throw doubts in our mind, to make us cynical and jaded, and to cover up in our faith, and our innocence, and our wholesome faith, and our complete faith, to cover up in the power of our faith. But the truth is, even while we're covering up in the power of the faith, the godly soul believes in God 100%. And even the animal ego soul also believes in God 100%. So it's just, it's just an, a delusion. It's just a, it's just a cover. And therefore, we can, that's why it's possible to change 180 degrees. The moment your heart is shattered into a thousand pieces... Suddenly you realize that your faith is intact, your faith is whole, you have complete faith, you, have, you never lost that innocence and that purity and that power of faith. It's there. It's there presently, intact and whole. And that cures a person of, of his arrogance. That cures a person of his apathy, of his indifference, of his complacency, of his lack of caring. And now the heart suddenly starts feeling again. You recapture that, that, that innocence, that love, that relationship you have with God, that excitement. And you can start living again. You can start changing again and growing and moving forward. 
and serving God joyously and with energy and with excitement and uh, with passion and with life and vitality. So this is the antidote. The Alter Rebbe is a good doctor. He's giving us the antidote <laughs> to this very pernicious, pernicious condition called apathy. Timtum halev, clogging of the heart. The clot. Stopping the blood flow. So he's helping us remove that clot. Don't argue with the clot. Don't, don't, don't break through, shatter it into a thousand pieces. When you shatter the clot into a thousand pieces, now suddenly a person who could hardly walk up the stairs because the heart was congested suddenly feels, feels, feels like a 20-year-old a, a once again. You can run. You, can, you feel alive. Before, every, you took ten steps. You already had to slow down. You couldn't walk anymore. And then when you break through the clot and the blood circulates once again, you, f- you, f- you, feel, you feel like a, a youngster. You feel you can run, you can jog. Same thing is true spiritually. When you have that clot and the blood stops circulating, you feel sluggish. You don't have the energy. You couldn't care less. You're not interested. I don't want to change. I don't want to grow. I don't want to move. I don't want to, I'm just... But the moment you, your heart is broken to a thousand pieces and you break through that clot, suddenly you feel youthful again. You feel alive. You can run. You can sprint. Now you're alive again. Now you've joined the living. Welcome back to life. To be continued.